I'm Tanisha Chia, and I'm the Vice President of Innovation for Krispy Kreme. And um, I have spent my entire career in the restaurant business. Um, I've worked on Chick-fil-A, I've worked on Taco Bell, KFC, Carrabba's, and now uh, Krispy Kreme. So I love consumer. Um, I love marketing and innovation and really understanding data to make decisions. So hopefully we get a chance to talk about that today. Excellent. Uh, good afternoon. I'm Laura Mecklen. I'm a partner with the law firm of Seifarth Shaw. I have the wonderful opportunity to lead our labor and employment department um, for the firm. Uh, and we are trying to be forward thinking um, all the time on some of these issues. I say trying because um, every day is a different day. Uh, and so we have our own challenges. But I think um, there's already been a lot that we've talked about um, already with some of the past uh, speakers today. Um, and I think we can get into some really interesting uh, work. I'm also a former musician. I come to law from music. Um, so I particularly love this um, atmosphere. Um, and we'll say that you, that, act, that career trajectory actually works. Um, so we can talk about that later if you want. Fantastic. Um, so this, this panel is called the Art of Analytics. And essentially what we're endeavoring to do is identify the, the top things that, that you can do within your... Uh, within your organization to drive commercial value and innovative process uh, through these departments and, and these functions within a corporation that aren't traditionally data-centric, right? So, shocker, the law might be one of them, the legal department, uh, but also marketing and, and product development and, and innovation. So we're going to be kind of tackling those, uh, those topics uh, here. So we're really going to be focusing on three primary drivers for, uh, you know, for developing these analytics programs uh, with two supporting kind of ideas. Uh, so the first is keeping your eye on the prize and focusing on, on the actual commercial value. Uh, so this really boils down to uh, knowing the goals of your organization and making sure that you are meaningfully contributing to them. Shocker, right? Uh, who here knows what their organization's uh, financial goals are for this quarter or this year. Awesome. And who here feels and knows the magnitude of their contribution to achievement of those goals? Good. I'm, there's, you know, that was a less enthusiastic uh, response. Um, but yeah, so thinking about those things and, and those, those commercial drivers are important. Uh, then we're going to touch a bit on process and information integration with, uh, throughout different business units. Um, and then lastly, asking the right questions to move beyond confirmatory analysis. And this is going to kind of be shrouded in uh, employing an effective communication strategy within your organization, as well as uh, the beautiful notion of continuous improvement. So commercial outcomes. So let's start with, uh, with Tanisha. As we were talking about um, you know, those, those first questions, understanding what your organization's goals are and how you support that, that goal achievement, especially through the product development process. Uh, what does that look like for, for you at Krispy Kreme? Sure. Um, so everybody probably thinks of Krispy Kreme as just a donut um, company. Um, we actually have made a recent acquisition, and we acquired Insomnia Cookie, if you've heard of that. If you live anywhere near a college campus or have a college student, you've probably heard of Insomnia Cookie. 
Uh, they deliver cookies overnight up till 3 a.m. hot. So it's awesome. Um, so we acquired them, and that is uh, under our strategy to become the most loved sweet treat brand in the world. So not just about donuts, but about sweet treats in general. And so my role as VP of Global Innovation is to make sure that we are addressing the strategic pillars that's going to help us get there. Um, so expanding beyond donuts. Um, we have ice cream and tests in some places. And just looking at what are all the complements and what are all the things that fall under that to help us ladder up and, and get to become the most loved sweet treat brand in the world. So that is an altruistic kind of vision goal. And then we do have financial supporting goals underneath that and metrics that we look at. We're a private company, um, we're privately held, but we definitely are very beholden to a quarter system and, and know every quarter if we're on track or off track and what are the levers that got us there and what are the levers that we need to change to either dig us out or keep pushing on to continue to achieve our goals. Yeah, and so from a new product development perspective, not just uh, an, an acquisition of, of an existing brand and integration, but from uh, creating a new flavor mm -hmm. or, or developing something, um, we spoke a bit about the stage gate process that, that you currently use at Krispy Kreme. This is kind of a boiled down example of one. Um, could you explain what a stage gate process is for other people? And then maybe we can touch on some of the analytical inputs that, that kind of move through. Yeah. So the process um, that I use for Krispy Kreme is we call it IDEAL. It stands for ideate, design, execute, actualize, and launch. Um, and this, like Eric said, is kind of a version of that. Um, so we use this process to work cross-functionally together to launch new products, new platforms, um, it can be used really for anything. It could be used to launch a new process for, let's say, the operations team wants to launch a new process. It's really just a decision tree process to help you guide you through in launching something new and making sure that you're hitting every conceivable question and touch point and keeping the business in mind at every, every point. But the first thing really is consumer analysis. And that, for me, starts with consumer testing concepts. And so that's a statistically significant sample of consumers that we have given them a sample, a concept to look at. We probably have about, most recently I just did about 50 concepts um, in front of consumers, but that's a monadic sample. So one consumer is not gonna see 50. One consumer is gonna see one. Um, and then another consumer is gonna see a different one. And so between that we have for each concept, so out of for those 50 concepts, we have a sample size of at least 250 or more seeing each of those individual concepts. So um, you get the feedback on all certain metrics like overall liking, purchase intent, um, uh, would I make the extra trip, all sorts of different metrics to let us know whether or not this concept is worth pursuing to develop into a product. From there, if, it, if it's positive and it moves into an actual test where we're doing intercepts in a location, maybe it's at one of our shops or it's a central location test, um, then we're asking people, is it too sweet? Is it sweet enough? Is it, if it's supposed to be a chocolate donut, is the chocolate chocolatey enough? Is it too sweet? And those result in what you see there called jar scores, which means just about right. And so sometimes you'll get a score that's either too sweet, not sweet enough, or just about right. And so you want your jar scores to kind of always be just about right. Um, but you also kind of look at things and you also know what consumers always just want more of. Like, 
when I worked for Taco Bell, people always wanted more cheese and they always want more meat. So, I mean, they, there's never enough cheese on anything. I think we all can agree with that. Yeah, I yeah. agree. Yeah. Um, and then sentiment analysis. This helps from a really large, from a brand perspective. Um, so I've been in organizations where we are measuring brand sentiment by the minute. Um, for instance, um, uh, at Taco Bell, we have a, a, there was a room called Fishbowl and a wall full of televisions showing all sorts of different things, but literally by the minute, measuring brand sentiment, whether it's going up or down, and you can kind of see how maybe tweets are coming in on your own page, on your competitor's page, or in some other kind of macro organization that might have an input or impact into Taco Bell that might be impacting that sentiment. Um, yeah, so there's, yeah, there's an example of that. Did yep. I jump forward too far? No, 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 it's all good. Okay. So, um, so after you get through that consumer analysis yeah. and you hit your first gate, where so you mm -hmm. have to analytically show and, and demonstrably say this is a project worth continuing on. Yeah. With. So Laura, um, if you were working with Tanisha in, it, throughout this process, from a legal perspective, uh, let's say you, you have a client who's creating a new, new product, or maybe it's not even product related, maybe it's uh, uh, your client is strategically looking to grow and onboard entirely new business units or you know, an acquisition or whatnot. Uh, what are the things that you'd be thinking of from an analytical perspective and a regulatory perspective that you might um, provide there? Yeah, I mean, you know, listen, we can lawyer every last bit of every issue <laughs> that might come up, right? So um, I think it depends on, you know, like sort of the underlying substantive nature of what's being pushed forward. But in terms of driving ideas forward, you know, we at Cypher are constantly um, lecturing to ourselves about not being the no people. And so I heard the jokes earlier, and that's fine because lawyers are like this. We end up being the no people sometimes. Um, but we were talking actually earlier about these business processes and the way in which businesses push forward new ideas and innovation. And um, I have clients all the time, internal legal counsel, who are not at all connected to their innovation arms. So I will ask them, you know, from the legal department, do you know what your innovation arm's even doing? You know, what is their charge? How are they spending their time? You know, what's the big idea on their plate? What are they pushing forward? What are they, what are they ideating? Um, are they in a design cycle around something? And half the time the lawyers are like, I have no clue whatsoever. And that's because we lo were looked at in being the no people and they're saying, you know, whatever you can do to work around the lawyers and not have to bring them in, then fine. But the problem is when Tanisha and I are working together and you get to the first stage gate or you get beyond that first stage gate and you're in the second stage of a design cycle and that's when somebody who is either outside counsel like me or somebody in the in-house legal department gets involved and if there's really a hard no, like the law just does not allow you to do that or it opens the, the, the conversation up in terms of significant risk for the company, then that's where there is this tension between you know, your innovation team, your business teams, um, and the law department. So, you know, uh, you know, frankly, if there can be an earlier, uh, you know, way in which you bring lawyers into the process and they are told that you have to be solution people or you at least have a conversation with your general counsel that you have to be solution people, um, it hopefully can be better. I mean, you can't talk to all lawyers and tell them to be solution people because they are risk averse um, as a profession, but it's tough. So um, I think the other thing for us as a law firm, you know, we're 12, actually now probably 14 years in 
um, to um, our own, you know, sort of innovation process and way of incorporating. We pioneered the use of Lean and Six Sigma within the law firm context, looking at legal process um, and the way in which um, legal services are delivered. And so one thing I'd be, that was really interesting to hear on the business side here is looking at this design cycle, you know, how can lawyers actually contribute to that? You know, is there something that we could do, you know, positively to drive forward the business of the organization, um, not just come and say no or not just say, oh, this is the legal framework? Um, because, again, with multidisciplinary teams, you know, sometimes there can be totally new and different approaches where a no can turn into a different or innovative idea. And that also really speaks well, I think, to um, the notion of understanding what your organization's goals are and working toward and meaningfully contributing to them. Because if your firm has an innovation arm and you're not aware of what that innovation arm is doing, that innovation arm might be working on ways to drive your, your costs down so your profit is higher and you're stuck in your build out billable hour tunnel, <laughs> right? Then you might be missing the boat and you might be missing opportunities for um, optimization and better use of your time to even drive those profits even higher. Um, also from a legal perspective, interestingly, uh, a law firm that I'm working with currently, uh, we're implementing a stage gate process for their case decisions so that they can better re report back and hit those gates to their clients um, or for lower level lawyers uh, defending continued investment in a case, they have to hit those milestones and be able to essentially prove the concept, uh, whether analytically or legally, uh, before the firm invests more money. And it gives them a better opportunity also to manage those expectations for their clients. Um, yeah. So being a, a former R&D leader, the StageGate process, I'm totally veteran to. And, and this is actually something that I find in my, in my own work that I've done in the past where having our legal team on board throughout the entire process was an absolute advantage. And so from my perspective, I know some of you are coming from an intellectual property background. You know, an example of how that works really, really well um, is having um, your legal team on board as partners and throughout the process of R&D and development, you know, really developing that, um, that IP portfolio, both a, um, an offensive and defensive position, you know, understanding what your overall IP strategy is as well as lining that with your business strategy. And so um, in, in my own career, I've had a lot of success working with legal as partners from the very beginning. Um, and it absolutely is an asset to uh, the work that we do, but it definitely required um, work to, to reframe what people's role was because our, uh, our patent team had been so used to sort of after the fact being engaged and never being part of the process and being looked to for their expertise and guidance as we were developing the products. So uh, this is something that I get really excited about and <laughs> I see lots of opportunities for partnering actually. One quick note on that actually is we saw a client um, in the technology space that uh, licenses their technology um, out. I'm trying to 
uh, I probably could give more specifics, but it might be known in terms of who the client is. But one really interesting thing was they started this experiment where they started bringing legal in earlier and trying to, to partner. And this was, um, it was uh, an initiative from the general counsel of we're trying to get to know our clients better. And it was really kind of more of a communication and collaboration type initiative. But what ended up growing out of that, interestingly, was one of the key lawyers in their litigation team actually litigated misuse of the licensing. And he ended up, it turned completely around as part of this process, and he ended up being one of the largest revenue-producing people in the company. Um, so he was actually looked at as a, as a just completely different than what the legal department was in the past. So this, you know, that type of collaboration really led to this very powerful outcome for the underlying business in general, never mind just this collaboration, like, hey, we're going to be friends, you know, idea. So, yeah, it was cool. Yeah. Excellent. Um, so you'll see in this, in this design without, you know, we'll move on just to keep the conversation going. But the uh, revenue forecasting piece, you know, after you kind of have that proof of concept, then immediately it's brought back into will this make us money and how do we know? And it's predictive analytics, right? It's looking at past trends, buying behaviors, the different variables that might impact future sales, um, and then optimizing for optimal revenue. Um, there's a lot of really interesting stuff just in, in the various conversations that we've had about the, the types of human analytics that are, you know, that are driving a lot of these studies. Um, and we'll get into that a little bit more. Uh, but when I was in, in graduate school studying all of this, we were learning about things like you can't actually predict human behavior with the with really high levels of, of accuracy, but more and more and more data is available that's driving that accuracy rate higher and higher in kind of a quasi-terrifying way. So, so from, a, from a human or people analytics perspective, uh, I know that Helgi mentioned on the previous panel that uh, organizations are becoming prescriptive with what what they're measuring about people and and are about employees, and uh, this is dictating things like how you run a meeting and and whatnot. Um, Harvard Business uh, had a really great article that was talking about not just the behaviors, but the interactions within an organization and how those interactions can actually drive. Uh, you know, different efficiencies as measured through a people analytics strategy. Um, so talk about non-traditionally data-centric, uh, you know, business units, HR, more regulatory <laughs> than anything. Um, so when you look at workforce analytics and what internal and external drivers uh, might exist, uh, it, it really creates kind of a really interesting picture about how you can leverage those different things by developing an innovation team or, or advising clients on uh, structuring and growth initiatives. Um, so did you, you know, either of you, I'll kick it over to you if you have anything to you know, add to that. I mean, we work completely cross-functionally and interestingly enough, we actually just went through a whole organizational exercise where we tried to assign people's time, specific people's time to specific projects. And I feel like what we found, you know, fast forward, spoiler alert, we didn't end up doing any of that, is because 
in an organization that is so consumer-driven so fast, um, it's not like consumer-driven electronics where that's a longer product development cycle. I mean, we're developing very fast. Consumers get bored and want to eat something new almost on a weekly basis. So um, when we're moving so fast in an organization like that, you have to be a little bit more flex and you have to be a little bit more open to... Um, kind of game time movement. So you may be working on this project today and then something may crop up and that's the new shiny object and we need your resource your expertise over here and we'll fill this hole. And when you have these like kind of rigid systems that assign people's time and, and capabilities, it just doesn't work in a system that's as fluid as ours. Um, but the big takeaway from that though, also even though we didn't end up actually doing any of that, was um, a more mindfulness and understanding of um, human resources and how we're flexing people and putting the right, I think somebody said it earlier, talked about good to great, putting the right person on the right seat on the bus and kind of taking a step back when we do put those new shiny projects in, in, in front of people, not just moving people willy-nilly, going, okay, let's step back and look at the big picture and make sure we have the right seat people in the right seats on that right bus. Yeah, so it's much like most things, it's about balance, right? Yeah. Because you, you lose agility as, uh, as you're more rigid, but also you need structure so that the train doesn't go off the rails. Um, go ahead, Laura, what do you think? Yeah, no, I mean, it's interesting. I wish that law firms did more around the workplace uh, analytics piece. I think we're, we're sort of trying to get there, but, um, you know, you're not seeing a lot. There are some firms that are doing some really interesting kind of pre-employment um, I shouldn't say testing because all my employment law colleagues would shriek right now um, if they heard me say pre-employment testing. Um, but, um, you know, sort of writing sample, but live writing sample type, um, you know, exercises and things during the recruitment um, process that can give you certain, um, w along with other data, um, certain information that allows you to source, you know, talent a little bit better. Um, but in our work as employment lawyers with our own clients, we're seeing a lot of really interesting work being done. So a lot of work using, um, you know, data analytics for, uh, you know, looking at retirement trends and, you know, sort of where, you know, where people are likely to retire uh, in terms of locations of a business, um, physical locations, um, and then at the age or in certain, um, you know, work groups or levels within the company um, that allow you to really get to better analysis and strategy within a company around uh, what that might look like. We're looking at, you know, a ton of work right now around diversity and inclusion. You know, how can we look beyond sort of the simple demographic data and into more behavioral data and other heuristics around um, how people, you know, come to the workplace and, you know, interact with each other um, to look at how can we retain diverse talent, um, uh, for example. So um, a lot of that, which then leads us into sort of a legal framework and um, the way in which we have to be careful about the, the, the implementation of those types of tools. Um, but it's incredibly powerful. And again, getting to this idea of that legal can be more than just the no people, it gets then an HR department into a different position within a company to say, we actually are strategy people. We're not just you know focused on compliance. We can develop a talent strategy that can, in fact, add to the bottom line or you know retain expensive talent. And that's really exciting to see. Has uh, anybody here, maybe prior to today, thought at all about HR 
as a driver for strategic growth and, and talent. I know I hadn't. Um, but I think that's, that's a really interesting uh, perspective because all these things do ultimately drive back down to that bottom line. What is the commercial value of measuring this, of optimizing it, and of, of mobilizing and implementing that, that, that strategy? So that leads to a really great point, and, and cross-functional teams have, have been mentioned multiple times, and you know, we're definitely <laughs> jumping the gun, but it's a, it's very, it's, it's a permeating uh, topic. So understanding where process and data integration points exist within your organization. Um, earlier, somebody was talking about uh, having disparate systems within their, within their organization, disparate data systems, and uh, having trouble reconciling them to drive value and you know making those data connections. It happens on a human side too, as we've discussed, and it happens also through process. Uh, so we're gonna talk a little bit about that. Um, I'm assuming everybody knows what a cross-functional team is, uh, so I'm not gonna get too much into it. Um, so I'm gonna stay on the slide for a second though. So Tanisha, when we were uh, chatting, um, and you had mentioned it, every team is a cross-functional team at, at Krispy Kreme. Um, at Krispy Kreme or, or other places that you've worked, how are uh, individuals allocated to different teams in a cross-functional manner, and uh, how is that optimized or measured for performance outcomes? Sure. Um, think back to, um, so when I was with Yum, um, we would we had a very um, robust development process throughout the entire year. So in the beginning of the year, you set goals and blue chips with smart goals, so measurable goals. Um, and then in the middle of the year, you kind of have a, a kind of check-in called an um, IDP, which is Individual Development um, Process, and at the end of the year, you have your review. And that individual development process there it's like a form, but on that form, there's multiple things, and it asks you questions like, what do you want your next um, role to be? And that's not title, but role. Like, what are the types of things that you're interested in? What are the types of things that you want to do? Um, or it would ask you, it would say, like, um, what are the things you're most interested in in the organization that you're not currently a part of? Um, and so f that is actually a very useful and used document to help place people on the right teams. Um, as you're looking and, and kind of changing things throughout the year because we, we did do things on a very extremely well-oiled machine. So we did do um, project changes and new projects, product, projects kicked off around the same time every year between, you know, after, the, in the start of the new year when you're getting ready to set goals and then you've, you've seen all the inputs that everybody kind of put on their IDP. So it was part of the HR process actually. Um, but it was used, I guess, in a way to figure out where people could be most effective, um, but also based on like what they were actually bringing to the table in the organization too, so it was kind of a hybrid of all of those things together. So Laura, from a, a legal perspective in, in the law firm or uh, you know, when you're working with your clients, how does the structure of uh, development of cross-functional teams aid in um, ideation, idea sharing, innovation, yeah. and risk mitigation. 
Yeah, so just on the law firm side, we, we believe actually very strongly in uh, folks who are not practicing lawyers contributing in material ways to the work of our clients. So we have um, a, you know, a whole team of certified legal project managers. We have legal technologists. Um, we have an entire group called Cypherth Labs that houses the legal technologists along with a number of other uh, folks, programmers, you know, any number of different types of skill sets in there, um, in part because we, we think that in order to deliver client solutions and to really get to a point where you're uh, delivering legal services in an efficient way that actually you know, provides value. You can't do that just by having lawyers, practicing lawyers coming to the table. Um, and so they, with some of our more, what I would say, you know, innovative with a capital I, actually innovative, not just, what's the phrase, you're not just creating theater. But when we're doing real, actual innovation that's delivering value to clients, we have almost never done that without a cross-functional team. And so it's, you know, and so I think there's this thing in the legal industry about the non-lawyers or this sort of pejorative way of talking about people who are not practicing. And I just think that's a huge mistake. Um, you know, the other thing is they come and they co uh, coordinate and collaborate with client teams. So sometimes we have our legal project managers going on site and having meetings with our clients without any lawyers. You know, they're... I mean, they may be lawyers, they're just not practicing. But, you know, so they're off, they're doing their own thing, helping us drive forward, you know, certain types of work, and, you know, none of, nobody's, you know, billing that time. They're just, they're cooperating, collaborating. One other really fast thing that I wanted to say on this piece is it's not just about bringing a team of different individuals together. There's this powerful concept that's been talked about a lot in kind of the legal operations space and legal innovation space around either the T-shaped lawyer, or what you call delta lawyers, and I think that it that's a concept that can go beyond just the legal space. Um, but the idea being, I learned about it first in the T-shaped lawyer, but the idea being that an individual can have T-shaped skills, meaning you have very deep skills in one area. So I'm a, I started my career as an employment lawyer. I'm, I think I'm a pretty darn good employment litigator in California, so that's my deep, deep skill. I can, you know, litigate the heck out of that case. But in my law firm management role, I know a lot about budgeting and pricing and, you know, you know I'm not a technologist, but a lot about the type of technology we can leverage. So the T on the top of the deep skill that I have is this more shallow set of a lot of different types of skills that are very important for me to bring to my management role with the law firm, to my clients, and to conversations such as these, right? So um, when, you're, when you're bringing a team together, it's also interesting to think about the individual skill sets and are you bringing people together that have that T-shape or that have a delta shape where they may have deep skills or broad skills in some areas, but then can add to the conversation in others, right? So I think that's an an important way of thinking about how can a lot of these concepts be brought into the legal world, you know, when a lot of us didn't like math as kids and I got a C in <laughs> physics for non-majors. I mean, really, like, <laughs> it's for non-majors, like, should have been easy. <laughs> so, um, you know, I think that actually parallels a lot with uh, conversations that happen a lot about diversity and inclusion, right? Because it's not just diversity in staff. It's not just racial gender diversity or anything. It's diversity in experience, right? And, and honing those peripheral skills and even some of those different ones that, remember, analytics is about making those, those connections and understanding the interconnectedness of things. So perhaps 
you know, your core, the, 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 the deeper part of your experience in the T might actually correlate and bring enormous amount of value to one of those more shallower, there's more shallow skill sets that you can then further develop for exponential commercial value as a result. Um, <laughs> so process is also a, a big part of it, process integration, right? So uh, this, is the, this is a process map that I worked on that was for obviously a fairly complex process. Um, and it was in their current state, right? The, the current operating state. And if you look at, um, you know, in process mapping parlance, all the decision points are the diamonds. And the, uh, the top left one that has a circle over it, uh, it's a database interaction. And so if you think about from an analytics perspective, how can you optimize the outcomes of any given process? And it's going to be at those decision points. And maybe that optimization is happening through uh, automation, maybe, which everyone will talk about later. Um, maybe it's happening through knowledge sharing. Maybe it's in a cross-functional way where another team member from a different department or business unit is taking over that step, but the information is seamless. Um, so Tanisha at Krispy Kreme, from a process perspective, outside of the stage gate process, um, and, or just in your background, not necessarily at Krispy Kreme, um, with uh, analytic maturity and the structures and processes surrounding um, you know, work and innovation and ideation, uh, how have you seen this fail and how have you seen this concept win? So I actually have one of these at Krispy Kreme, a process map. Um, when you were showing me this one, I, I think we both saw this, this point here where you had the data one as really interesting because I think all my interactions on mine are all human. And um, we're actually not like super high tech at Krispy Kreme, um, but we do have a centralized place where you can put documents, have interactions, have discussions, um, collaborate on things. And it just made me see that I can bring in some of that to replace some of the human interaction to make it flow a little bit more efficiently. Um, but I'd say where I've seen it go well is um, when you have all of the different organizations in the company on board who believe in the same thing and are headed in the same direction or paddling in the same direction. Um, when you have even one department that isn't paddling in the same direction, it's just going to be pure chaos no matter how well everybody else is operating. Um, and so I think it's just getting people on board and making sure that everybody knows what all these, even if they're not in each of these steps, they understand why these steps are even relevant. Because if you have a dismissive point of view about why a step's even relevant, then you're, you're just not going to be on board. So. Um, I feel like I've seen these things work well on paper, and then it's humans that screw it up. Um, and it's up to us to make sure that we galvanize as an organization that we're like, we're headed in the right, we're all headed in the same direction. This is our, our critical path to get us there. Let's just do this and we should be fine. Critical path is a really important concept in, in um, you know, analysis of process. Um, the other thing that, that kind of a recurring theme for the day is that with these integration points, if they're automated and they're data integration points, then you're perpetuating knowledge management without 
the risk of losing a uh, you know a personal asset uh, to your organization. So, um, I'm being told that we are running out of time. Um, so to to start wrapping it up, um, sometimes the data doesn't support the outcome, and so. Uh, Tanisha has uh, an interesting product development story here from her time at Taco Bell that I'll let her tell about, you know, the, sometimes the power of intuition. It's not always about the data. Um, so like I said, we use data from the very beginning. You come up with an idea and it's like, great, get that down on paper, get in a concept, let's test it and see if it's worth it. And so this concept in particular came out... Um, we used to bring consumers in real time. In this particular exercise, we asked them to bring um, an example of something that they would want in a sandwich. What is an ingredient that you'd want to add to a sandwich? And we uh, called them our value guys, and they came in, and everybody brought a plethora of things. Somebody brought chips, and we're like, chips in a sandwich? Okay, and so, you know, crunchy sandwich. And then the idea of, like, how do you get in texture and different textures inside of burritos? Um, which have the soft tortilla on the outside, right? So um, we concepted an idea um, partnering with Frito-Lay, um, Yum Pours Pepsi, so Frito-Lay is a natural partner. Um, so partnered with Pepsi and came up with a concept called Beefy Crunch Burrito, which was using Flaming Hot Fritos inside of a very simple burrito. It was to be sold for a dollar. Actually, when we launched it, it was sold for 89 cents. So it's a very simple burrito, leveraging... Flaming Hot Fritos. We thought it'd be great, great flavors. Our consumers intersect. We know this is a natural tie-in, and then we concepted it, and it just like failed miserably. And if something fails miserably at 89 cents, you're like, well, how? then we just shouldn't do it because it's only 89. The barrier to entry is like super low. Um, but we just really believed in the concept. We really believed in the consumer overlap. Um, and so we went into in-store testing with consumers. And when people tried it, they loved it, like really, really loved it. And so you had this one thing where you had all these consumers, like I said, we did them all statistically significant testing, all these consumers telling you this is a bad idea, don't do it, purchase interest is low. And then people actually try it, they love it. Um, and you have to make a call because launching a product at 6,000 stores is not cheap. So you have to make a call to decide whether to do it or not to do it because it's a major investment. Um, and so we actually did end up launching it, and that was back in 2008, and it is still coming back almost every year. Like, it's a cult favorite. People love it. They tattoo it on their bodies. Um, that's just... <laughs> That's just one tattoo of many. Um, there's so, a Twitter hashtag. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's literally no food I love enough to tattoo on my body, but there are several people out in the world who love this burrito enough to tattoo it on their body. And had we just listened to the data, then we would have never been graced with this tattoo. So, um, yeah. You know you're winning when the videographer is taking a picture of it. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think you know it just goes to tell you and show that you, you know, you can measure and measure and measure and measure and measure, and maybe the maybe the the testing had some unknown testing bias in it, or you know the outcomes were weren't as intended, um, but there was still value in in the intuition behind it. Um, so just to wrap up, last thing, I'll let Laura close it out. In terms of innovation as a culture of continuous improvement, you know, what are your final thoughts kind of on, on that uh, in terms of 
um, growth, strategic development, uh, analytics, and measurement. Yeah, so um, my, one, my main idea that I always talk about in, at, when asked this type of question um, was talked about earlier, which is um, the power of small data is, you know, just really amazing. Um, so especially in law firms and law departments where there may not be data integrity or data maintained at all, um, just uh, moving towards some type of measurement or, or some type of, you know, containing of information or data in the first place and then going to small measurements can be extremely powerful to show uh, progress in terms of delivering value. Um, I'm also a huge fan in the legal world because you're dealing with the lawyer brain and the risk-averse type personality of doing pilots. So we pilot things like crazy at Cypher. I mean, it's everything's a pilot. Sometimes for like five years I'm piloting something because it allows them to be completely okay with the fact that we fail. Um, so when I go to our executive committee and I say, oh, this pilot, you know, I told you it was going to fail. It was going to be really terrible. And in fact, it did. And these are all the things we, we learned from it. And this is why we're going to fix it. And let's do another pilot in year two. And then by year three and four, we've really refined something and they can feel, you know, okay with it because we've piloted and it was all meant to fail. And now we've learned all these great things. And look at us. We're so smart because piloting things and failing at them leads to learning and that what's that's what makes us smart so um in any event it's one tool and technique that you can use at least with the lawyer crowd excellent uh tanisha did you have anything that you wanted to add to close um, um no i think that's that's you just i was sitting here like thinking of a million stories to go along with that that's you just always learn forward um I think back in grad school, 3M came and did a presentation um, on campus and they talked about how they have um, an area, I think maybe on the marketing floor, where they like pin up their failures and like they do a bowling ball exercise at it. I don't know exactly what it is, but it sounded really cool and it sounded, it made failure okay um, because they, they, they learned forward and they learned from it and then they celebrated the failures because they definitely got something out of it. Um, so I think continuous improvement if embraced by the organization, they have the stomach for it, I think is something that should totally be embraced. But hopefully, you know, your organization has the stomach for it because not a lot do, so, yeah. Yeah, and from an analytics perspective, it all comes down to measuring it, right? So measuring the successes, measuring the failures, and then being able to mathematically project forward and uh, mm -hmm. so that the wins are bigger and more frequent. Anyway, well, thank you, everybody. Um, thank you to the wonderful panelists.